Welcome to the Preacher Podcast, where we believe that preaching should be biblical. And for it to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. We talk to preachers about, well, preaching. Whether you have preached one sermon or 1,000, we're here to serve those who want to preach better. I'm your host, Alan Stanley. Hey everyone, just me here for this episode. I'll get to what I want to talk about in the moment, but I'm actually in an airport hotel at the moment, Kuala Lumpur. I was on my way home from Nepal, had two weeks there, hadn't been there since 2019 before COVID. It was great to get back. The first week I was teaching uh, John's uh, theology of John's gospel. Uh, followed by um, a couple of days on Christian ethics. And then the following week, I was with 50 pastors or so teaching um, about the book of Ephesians in light of the grand narrative of Scripture. And just really great time. Good to be back, have a lot of friends there uh, that I haven't seen now, at least in person, for three and a half years. And it was good to be back with them. And I'd been thinking about uh, the next podcast episode, which I'll be, um, I'll, I will be getting to that halfway through next week, doing an interview for the next one. But uh, we drew for another one out, and I had been thinking of doing one myself. And I was talking to, or at least messaging a friend back in New Zealand this morning, and asked them how the sermon was at their church. And they said to me, it was great, it was filled with hope. And it made me think again on the importance of hope when it comes to preaching and how actually hope uh, does help the sermon. It does give people that feeling, oh, that was a that was a great sermon. And I don't mean a great sermon in terms of... Um, you know, there wasn't any challenge or anything like that. I don't, I don't mean to convey that, um, but it was a hope-filled sermon, which I think sermons in general, in general, should be, because that's what the gospel is. The gospel is filled with hope. Um, I, I guess you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that there is a connection between mental health and hope. There's no greater medicine. Um, for our mental health than, than hope. We all need something to look forward to. Studies have actually shown that a hopeful person does one day a week more work than a less hopeful person in a seven-day work week. That's quite incredible when you think about it. Get a, To get a day's productivity more out of a person with hope in a week than a person without hope. Um, if you tell a person that their pain is not um, life-threatening or is not that serious or is something that is simply normal, uh, that person is going to handle their pain a whole lot better and in fact may not even uh, feel the full extent of the pain than a person who simply does not have that information. Studies have been done on that as well. Um, there's just this um, connection between hope and our perception and our thoughts and our mental health. 
Um, hope tells us that there is something on the horizon. If you're out at sea and you're in the water and, you know, possibly uh, drowning and ready to give up and all of a sudden you see land, it, it gives you strength to swim, to do what you could not do perhaps 10 seconds earlier. Uh, the, the horizon simply does something for us. It, it gives us an extra boost. It gives us energy. It gives us strength. It can even give us joy. It tells us whatever place we are at in our journey that it's not over, um, that there's something more ahead, something better ahead. If you've been on a plane for six hours, which hopefully I will be shortly, and realize that you've got another eight to go, you'll be less energized than when you realize you only have one to go, even though you've been on the plane longer. So something about hope that energizes us, it lifts us, it gives us fuel, it's like we get a taste of the future, but coming into the present. Um, it's all this to say how important hope is for our preaching, because we want we want our preaching to do that for people, to energize them, um, to go out with a renewed sense of energy for the week. Psalm 42 confirms this link. Um, that we've been talking about. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. The psalmist says that twice. The indication here is that hope uh, will get him out of that state, out of that disturbed and downcast state. Now, biblical hope, of course, is different from everyday hope. Uh, there are plenty of things that we hope for. I hope that I'll get on a plane home this time tomorrow, but there's no guarantee. Um, and yet that's not the biblical hope. The biblical hope is a um, sure thing. Romans 5.5 5 says, and hope does not disappoint us. Our hope is, in other words, something that is guaranteed. And, it, and uh, it's, it's reliable, it's dependable, uh, it's never going to disappoint. Colossians 1.5 tells us that hope is the springboard for faith and love. The faith and love that spring from hope stored up for you in heaven. In other words, hope enables us to keep trusting. That's, that's the faith aspect. And it keeps us from becoming self-absorbed. That's the love aspect. The faith and love that spring from hope stored up for you in heaven. Faith and love. Hope energizes these things. In other words, hope is transformative. First John 3 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves. Hope is transformative. It changes us. Listen to Colossians 1 5 to 6. I quoted a little bit of it before, but listen to the whole thing. From the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. That's another way of saying that hope is bearing fruit. Hope's part of the gospel. Gospel's bearing fruit is tantamount to hope bearing fruit. But I want to return to Romans 5, 5. Um, a text that I quoted earlier. 
It says that hope does not disappoint. Here's the thing, though. Hope does sometimes disappoint. Let's be honest. God doesn't always heal. He doesn't always provide. And I know we can say it's because he's got something better. But what is that better? Romans 8.28 simply doesn't mean if we don't get the job, then God's got a better one for us around the corner. Or if we don't get healed now or provided for now, it's because he's got something miraculous around the corner. The problem is that you just can't verify this kind of hope in people's experiences. Can't necessarily verify it in my own experiences. Where then is the hope? Well, let's look at Romans 5 again and the context. If we back up to verse 2, it says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So this word hope occurs at the front end and at the back end of this passage. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, and then character produces hope. So Paul tells us what our hope is in up front. He says we boast in the hope of the glory of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to boast in the hope of the glory of God? Well, let's first discuss what this phrase means, the glory of God. I think those who preach need to know what the glory of God means. Because at the heart of the storyline of the Bible is God's glory. It's everywhere. It's like a thread. God's glory is also at the heart of preaching Christ, by the way. And I believe, and since I believe that biblical preaching is Christ-centered preaching, it must also be glory-centered preaching, I guess, if you might call it that. But glory is one of these terms that Christians know really well. I mean, we say it a lot. And we use words like glorified. We know really well, but we're not so great at describing it. And I think a preacher needs to understand it, not just give an abstract theological explanation of it or description of it as though they're reading it out of a text, but actually actually know what it is and know what it is in their own life. As someone said, you cannot lead people to where you have not been yourself. And I think that's very true. I think you can't lead them to spiritual terrain if you have not traveled that terrain yourself, if I could use that metaphor. So just to, um, I just want to give a quick overview here of um, glory in the Bible to show you, to show that this is a a thread. Um, I like to refer to it as God's passion, God's heart, um, uh, his longing, I guess you could say, um, but what he's passionate about, and, and, it, and we see it, it goes from the beginning to the end of the Bible, So, and, and at major junctures as well, at, at major points in the biblical story, which is significant. So starting with creation back in Genesis 1, starting with his non-human creation. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. In Romans 1.20, um, 
supports that and kind of gives a commentary on that, what that means. In other words, that creation demonstrates God's attributes, God's character. So there we're seeing a link, obviously, between God's character and God's glory. The human creation, um, similarly, Genesis 1.26, God created us in his own image and he created us to rule. And Psalm 8 verse 5 gives a commentary on Genesis 1 saying that God crowned us with glory. And then if we move on from creation to Israel, uh, Isaiah 43 verse 7 says that God created Israel for his glory. Um, Isaiah 49 verse 3 says that God, God's plan for his servant Israel is to display his glory. God's plan for his people um, is to display his glory. And that's in a whole bunch of verses in Isaiah, if you're interested, in 60 verse 9 verse 21 and 61 verse 3 and 62 verse 3. God's plan for his people is to display his glory. And God's plan for the world is to fill it with his glory. Psalm 72 verse 19 in Habakkuk 2.14. And then moving ahead in the biblical story, God's revelation of himself in Jesus is described as glory. Uh, it's, it's a pinnacle, really, of the biblical storyline, the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus, John 1.14 and Hebrews 1.3. And then continuing on further, but just a little bit further, the cross is the climactic point where we see God's glory. Uh, John's gospel describes it as that point where Jesus is glorified, John 12, 23 and John 17, 1. And then moving on after the cross, the church, um, God's, that's us Christians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we're to do all for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Paul prays in 2 Thessalonians 1, 12, uh, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Uh, and, and we could, you know, in some ways just link that with what we said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that that's, uh, that's our goal, uh, that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in us. And then moving, continuing to move along in the biblical storyline, Jesus' return. 2 Corinthians 1.10 describes the day when he returns, he will come to be glorified in his people. And then finally, the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 verse 11 says that the city shone with the glory of God. And 21.23 says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light so from the first creation to the final creation and everything in between there's this thread of god's glory so no wonder that some of jesus's last words in his prayer known as the high priestly prayer in john 17 for us 
He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. That's John 17, 24. That's the night before he's crucified. And that verse really says it all. To be with me where I am and to see my glory. In other words, to see Jesus' glory is to be in his presence, to be where I am, to be with me where I am, which makes sense. If we could summarize all that the Bible is saying about glory, all the verses that we've read, it's that God's glory is God's presence, or it's God himself, or it's God's character, or it's God's revelation of himself, however you might like to say it, amounts to the same thing. When Moses saw God's glory in Exodus 34, he saw the presence of God, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. He sees, he's confronted by, or the the character of God is revealed to him, but it's not something that he reads in a textbook. It's not something that he hears about. He experiences it personally. It's the, it's the presence of God, and, and, and that presence is all that God is, his character. But it's also his presence. When Isaiah saw the glory of God in Isaiah 6, he saw the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. In other words, he's like no other. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then he goes on and, and Isaiah responds in verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Once again, Isaiah's, Isaiah's response um, to God demonstrates that he is not just reading about him, uh, but he's actually experiencing him. He's experienced his, his presence, um, and his presence includes, obviously, his character. They go, they go hand in hand. When Jesus dies on the cross, and John calls that being glorified, we're really seeing the presence of God, the character of God. So what does Romans 5, returning to Romans 5, what does Romans 5 mean when it says that we boast in the hope of the glory of God? Well, it means that our boast is that we will one day be in the presence of God. We'll actually experience it. It won't be something that we're reading about. It won't, something, it won't be something that is simply located in our mind, in our intellectual um awareness but it'll something be that we physically emotionally tangibly experience and paul picks this up in romans 8 17 now if we are children then we are heirs heirs of god and co-heirs with christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not com worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then a couple of verses later in verse 21, talks about this glory. 
out in the future that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That's the glory that we look forward to in the future. Uh, you could say eternity, um, the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth that Revelation 21 and 22 talks about. So here's where we are with this. To preach hope is to preach that one day we will be in God's presence. Um, I remember I went to boarding school and my first year, uh, well, the first six months, first six months of boarding school, I was pretty homesick. And I remember um, was out at a um, funeral for my grandmother um, during those first six months early on. And um, afterwards, you know, meeting relatives and and family and so forth and i remember someone said to me and i was you know they're asking me how boarding school was and so i told them and and they said to me well it won't last forever now that might seem kind of like a trite statement but i didn't take it that way at the time it actually meant a lot to me the fact that yeah you know it won't last forever that there is something beyond it and that always stayed with me and there was that sense of uh there was that sense of hope um but it's more than that the the um the hope here that we are being introduced to is the hope of one day being in god's presence remember the constant refrain in the old testament fear not for i am with you in other words, being in God's presence means the absence of fear. Do not fear, for I am present with you. There's something about God's presence that eliminates fear. Make this, make this connection with 1 John 4.18. Perfect love drives out fear. In other words, to be in the presence of God means to be in the presence of perfect love, right? If God can say, fear not, for I am with you, and perfect love drives out fear, then obviously um, God, to be in the presence of God, is to be in the presence of perfect love. So just, to, so just think for a moment, can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like to be in the presence of perfect love? Um, if you need to press pause for a moment and do whatever you need to do to um, just imagine that, then please do so. Uh, can you imagine the presence of perfect love enveloping you everywhere you go, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, whatever you're doing, perfect love, always with you. We won't be walking on eggshells if that helps get it across. We won't be walking on eggshells around God we will be in the presence of perfect love. That's the hope that we have. It's on the horizon. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light, light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You ever been to a restaurant and the food's a long time coming and you say, oh boy, I hope it's worth the wait. Well, 
Paul is effectively saying here it would be worth the wait. And that's pretty hard to believe, given um, the fact that uh, our troubles and afflictions and sufferings can seem anything but light and momentary, uh, anything but transitory. Someone once said, actually, I think it was Tim Keller, who said the eternal kingdom will be beyond our wildest dreams and will meet our deepest longings. We will say, somehow, I just knew it was meant to be like this. I love that. We'll be beyond our wildest dreams and will meet our deepest longings. Somehow, I just knew that it was meant to be like this. But I hear you say, that could mean I could go for the rest of my life with nothing. I had someone, I mean, in other words, I could go the rest of my life and I, and I could never get out of this airport, for example, if I could use that metaphor. Um, I could never get out of the hopeless situation that, I, that I'm in. I had someone say this to me years ago when I was teaching a class on Revelation. Uh, and I was pointing out that the new heaven and the new earth that awaits us, uh, the, the role that it plays in the book of Revelation anyway, is to enable us to trust God and to persevere in the present. And the hope of the new creation to come is uh, to give us hope to persevere now. And someone said, so you're basically saying that while our present suffering might last forever, the hope of what's to come is supposed to get us through the present. In other words, he wasn't buying it. Um, and I really understood what he was saying. I got it, uh, but I simply continued to, um, to, uh, to kind of um, give him this line that this is, this is how the new creation was operating uh, in, in the book of Revelation, that the hope of eternity was to give us um, perseverance for the present. If we kind of fast forward from that point, over a decade later, my life took a turn to the point where I would wake up every morning and feel like I was in a literal nightmare. The only difference between a nightmare in my sleep um, and this one was that this one was real. And I wished that I could go back to sleep and wake up again and it not be real. And I remember saying to a close friend at the time during the season, I know that Romans 8, 29, um, a verse that we haven't discussed, but I know that Romans 8, 29 says that God's purpose for me is to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, which if I just kind of add a side note in here, that's basically saying that God's purpose for me, for us, is for him or for his son to be glorified in us, for his character to be revealed in us, in other words, um, for his presence to be revealed in us. Okay, so that's what I'm articulating to this friend. I know that Romans 8.29 uh, is is God's purpose for me. Uh, and I know that, that that's his purpose in this season 
Um, but I'm not sure that I want to pay the price. In fact, I don't even know if I said I'm not sure. I might have just said I don't want to pay the price. Um, and that's the first time I'd ever said that. It's the first time I'd felt it, first time I'd really believed it. Um, I just didn't want to pay the price. Uh, being a Christian for 30 years or so, uh, Bible college lecturer, pastor, PhD, all the rest of it, and um, I didn't want to take this next step um, and 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 pay the price that um, of you know the season of uh, suffering that was going to um, make me supposedly more like Christ. So yes in other words something had become more important to me than being conformed to the image of christ make of that what you will and as i moved through that season one thought that never left me and and that is that the cross and that is at the cross i'm talking about the cross that jesus died on god was at work more than any other time in history and yet to all appearances he was doing nothing it looked dark, it looked like death, it looked like God was absent, nothing to be seen, and yet quite the opposite was true. There is no other time in history where God has not been more at work. Right? So you get this bleak, dark, deathly period like nothing else in history, and yet quite the opposite is happening. And that's hope. That thought never went from me, never left me, that God was at work even, even when I had at times given up hope. And here's what, I should perhaps stop there for a moment and just reiterate that, um, that God was at work even when I had at times given up hope. Um, that God was working that God was working even when I had given up hope because that's because God's ultimate goal is his glory. God's ultimate goal is his glory. And so here's what here's what he was at work doing. He was carving within me, if I could use that expression, carving, think of a knife, within me a place for his presence to dwell like he'd never dwelt before. This is something Paul prays for in Ephesians 3. At the end of Ephesians 3, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now just think about that last line for a moment so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith now paul is praying for christians christ already dwells in their hearts so he's obviously praying for an experiential dwelling not an intellectual kind of dwelling or not even a positional dwelling whatever we might call it paul is not praying that these people might become christians He's praying that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Don Carson, in his book on Paul's prayers, uh, basically says that um, 
that Christ might make his home in us. Um, it's an experiential dwelling that Paul is praying for, that Paul is talking about. And this is something that will take supernatural strength and power, um, according to verse 16, because one cannot experience Christ while still holding on to things that give us that feeling of being strong. I, um, I mentioned this to pastors recently in Nepal, and I kind of um, acted out um, a little illustration where I put, um, I was thinking of Job chapter 1, where Satan says to God, have you not put a hedge around Job? Um, and, and that's why he still fears you, still worships you. In other, in other words, pull that hedge away, and then we'll see what he really thinks of you. And I talked about these various chairs in our lives, the hedge. It could be a career, could be our reputation, could be our health, could be our family, doesn't matter what it is. We have this hedge around us, um, which is which can always which always provides us with a degree of strength. Um, but in some ways it's not real strength because we never really know how strong we are until that hedge is gone and there's simply us and God. Uh, and that's the kind of strength I think that Paul is praying for here, not a strength that is propped up by the hedges in our life, but a, but a strength um, that is simply provided to us uh, by God. Think of Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, he felt weak with this thorn, but it was because of it that he came to experience Christ in a way that he hadn't before. In other words, um, it, was a, it was a newfound strength, but it was not a natural strength. In verse 9, Paul says that now he boasts in his weaknesses. Interestingly, he boasts in the hope of the glory of God as well, back in Romans Five, and now he boasts in his weaknesses, um, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So he boasts in his weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So if you think about it like this, the hedge is gone, the, the, those things in life that, that normally give us that feeling of strength, that's gone and for Paul, now that that's gone, he feels a new sense of power, he calls it, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that word rest is the Greek word episkeneo, episkeneo neo, which means to take up residence. Um, so the NRSV, I'm, I was quoting from the NIV before, so the NRSV is probably better, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me, or the Holman Christian Standard Bible, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So let's come back to Paul's prayer in Ephesians. After praying that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, Paul goes on to pray that we might have strength together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So it's more than an intellectual um, 
uh, knowledge of God's love, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Notice that ultimate. Notice the ultimate outcome of what Paul is praying for, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's not in the far-off distant new heaven and new earth. He asks for that now. That's a present possibility for the Christian. In other words, to experience the presence of God. That's, what he's, that, that's the ultimate outcome, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's to experience the presence of God, not to read about it or to intellectually be able to explain it or to know about it or uh, any of those similar kind of um, things, but to actually experience it. I use that word experience uh, with uh, emphasis. And it's significant that Paul prays this immediately before he launches into three chapters on how to live the Christian life. It's like he's saying you've got no hope of living the Christian life unless you first experience God. It's the same before the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, just before he launches into the Ten Commandments. Um, God speaks directly to Israel. It's the first time that he speaks directly to them without a mediator. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery out of the land of Egypt. And then he goes in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And it's like he's saying you've got no hope of living out the Ten Commandments until you first experience me, know me as a liberating God. So there needs to be, I think, this understanding and preaching of what it is that God wants. He wants people to glorify him, which means to reveal his presence in the way they live, to reveal his character in the way that they live, that, to be conformed to the image of Christ, in other words, or Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and, and everything that's in those chapters. Um, to reveal the presence of God, to, to reveal the character of God, God, to be more Christ-like, we could say. But for that to happen, we must first experience his presence. We must first experience his presence. And here's where we return to hope. Because God wants, because this is what God wants, this is what he longs for. This is what he longs. He longs for us to be conformed to the image of his son. But for that to happen, we must first experience his presence. And so, and, and that's something that we want. That's something that if I could, you know, go back um, all those years ago and I said to my friend, I'm not sure I want to pay the price. Well, at the front end, no, I didn't. Um, but, the, but the price is, Jesus thinks of it like this, I guess you could say. It's like a man who saw a treasure in a field and then um, once he saw it, he gave up all he had uh, to get the treasure. And, and that's, that's another way of saying what God longs uh, for us to have is is that treasure. Um, if I could sum up what I'm trying to say, um, 
and not sure if I'm able to articulate everything I'm trying to say. But here's a quote from A.W. Tozer that might help. We are full of religious notions about... We are full of religious notions about God, but our greatest weakness is that for our hearts there is no one there. In other words, we can say... Uh, we can rattle off a whole lot of confessions and a whole lot of doctrines and a whole lot of songs and we can say rattle off the attributes about God and we can say a whole lot of things about God um, but our greatest weakness is that our, in our deepest times of need there is no one there for our hearts um, in other words there's no one there's no one there um, um, for our hearts to actually experience. So we need to preach more than religious notions about God. We need to fill our sermons with hope. And that the hope that God wants to wants us to experience his presence, which means the hope that this life is not the end, that a new heaven and a new earth is the final home for God's people, but the hope of God wanting us to experience his presence is for the present and the hope that this presence will offer us more than what our idols can ever offer because here's the rub you see because when our idols get stripped away uh, when our hedges break down um, when suffering comes when life falls apart um, and it happens in very small ways in very big ways um, it's just that in very small ways we often um, can find the strength to get up again, whereas in big ways we can't necessarily. But it's in those times that uh, we tend to feel that God may, be, may have disappointed us. But here's the thing, those times are like the cross. On the outside, and I guess this is really what I'm trying to communicate, on the outside they appear like death. They appear like darkness. They appear like God is absent. But it's actually in those times when God is at work the most. He's never been at work more in our life, we could say, than at those times. Uh, and, our, and our deepest challenge is to simply, I don't know what to call it, but to submit, to trust. Um, uh, to trust is perhaps the right word. To have faith that God is at work and that he is wanting to bring about treasure, the experience of his presence. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is that that's something we need to be preaching. We need to give people hope. We need to fill our sermons with that, uh, uh, that God's presence offers us more um, than any of the idols can in this life, not an intellectualized presence, uh, not something that we simply uh, quote out of a textbook or, um, you know, whatever we might know about God. Um, and, and this is in some ways unexplainable because that's um, what experiencing anything is. Now, notice this is, you know... The, the last part of Paul's prayer to Ephesians is that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. But look what immediately comes after that. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That that connection is significant. I used to think that was, I had that, 
my wife and I had that on uh, a kind of prayer card we had made up. We went off to seminary in the States. Uh, in other words, that God had, you know, done more and he will do more than all we could ask or imagine. And it was kind of just, you know, representative of where he'd brought us to, I guess. And perhaps there's some truth in that. But I don't see that verse as, that's not what this verse is saying here now uh, in its context. You could say it like this. Do you doubt that, um, do you doubt that, God could ever fill you uh, to the full fullness of his uh, presence, as Paul puts it, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Uh, do you doubt that he can transform you? Do you doubt that he could do that in your life? Um, Paul says he can do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine according to his power that it works in us. That's hope. That's hope. That's what people need to hear. Um, because uh, people often go away from sermons, I think, um, I know they have of mine in the past, feeling guilty, uh, feeling like they can never do it. Um, uh, and, you know, in some sense they can never do it. But to leave them in that space, to leave them without hope, um, that's, um, that's not, I don't think, where preaching should be at. Uh, Paul here doesn't leave his readers that way. Before he goes in to you know, his treatise on the Christian life in these last three chapters of Ephesians, he gives them uh, a bucket load of hope. To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, um, all that we could uh, dream of, all, more than all we could imagine, and according to his power that is at work within us, that means he's working within us even even when we um, are not necessarily um, that on board. Because um, that's God's passion. That's what he longs for. And then notice what he says in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Um, so there we have these themes coming together. We have this idea of... Um, Christ filling us or God filling us with his fullness. Uh, we have this idea of hope that he's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And then we have the idea of glory that we've looked at. Uh, and I think it's my opinion anyway that um, our sermons, um, our preaching uh, needs to uh, fill people with with hope. Thanks for listening to the Preacher Podcast. If you've got a question or topic you'd like answered on a podcast, then please email alan at preachit.nz. If you'd like to know more about Preachit and the training we offer, go to www.preachit.nz or check out our Facebook page. This podcast was produced and edited by Ruffian Beats with music by Samuel James. Catch you next time on the Preacher Podcast where we want to serve those who want to preach better.